Good morning, everyone. Morning from me to add to my wife's um, hello. Um, we're currently in a teaching series at the moment, exploring uh, the Gospel of Mark in the beginning of the New Testament. If you've been tracking with us on the journey so far, don't worry, I'm not going to test you, but hopefully you can call to mind by now the framing thought that kind of like brings this whole series together. I should have tested you. The thought's this, that as we lean into Mark's account of Jesus' life and ministry, Jesus' story begins to make sense of our own stories. And that's what we've been seeing so far. Um, I'm going to do a quick recap to begin. Uh, week one, the beginning, we saw that Jesus' mission is recreation. He's come to recreate and restore the world to the one God originally intended in the beginning. And so we found that our lives are, in fact, a, a journey home, a journey of allowing Jesus to restore us and recreate us into the person he intended. Then week two was the call. We saw there's a call on each of our lives to give up our own like self-interested small stories for the sake of stepping into this bigger story of recreation. Number three, week three, the clash, if you remember. Um, we saw that the reason life so often feels like a battle to us is because our lives are in fact playing out in the midst of a spiritual battle that's raging all around us as the kingdom of God comes crashing in on another kingdom directly opposed to it. Week four then, the healing. We did these in a funny order, so this was actually cast taught last week. And um, We saw that what all of this looks like in practice is going to the marginalized and the oppressed and seeing them set free. And then finally, week five, the rest. We learned that um, we've been made to do all of this not simply by following a dead set of rules, but by coming alive into relationship with God, walking in step with God in friendship and in partnership. And so today we week, week six, which is the power. And um, you may or may not be pleased to know we are now three quarters of the way through the series, so there's just two Sundays uh, left. Um, you can catch up on all the old ones if you missed any on our podcast, by the way, Harold Vineyard Liverpool, uh, wherever you get your podcasts. I was like saying that. Makes me sound very official. Um, Week six this week, the power. And here we get the next piece of the puzzle, which is this, that the one that we're invited to walk with in friendship and partnership has power over everything. Has power over everything. Hands up if you believe Jesus is good. Hands up if you believe Jesus is powerful. Hands up if you wake up every morning and expect him to radically change circumstances in your life that are opposed to his good plans. Now, if you're anything like me, an honest answer to those questions might be, Jamie, it kind of depends what day it is. Uh, for lots of you, your answer might have been yes, theoretically, to all of those things, or kind of, to some extent. Some of you will actually be thinking, do you know what? Those are the questions I'm asking at the moment. I'm not sure the answer to any of those questions. Well, good news, because as we hit our passage today, which is in Mark 4, this is exactly the state that we find the disciples in. Uh, by now, they've been called by Jesus. They've begun to follow him. They've seen by now some pretty astonishing things. They've seen people physically healed before their eyes. They've seen people freed from oppression and set in their right minds in a moment. But their awareness of who Jesus is and the scale of his power to change circumstances around them is still limited. So I kind of think today's passage is like scratching where many of us in the room are itching today. And we do well to lean in now as we take a look at Mark chapter 4 and have a read together. So you might want to turn to it in your Bibles. If you haven't got a Bible, there's a bunch out on the seats. Page number 757, I just looked it up. 
on there, like the airline. Um, and um, Mark chapter 4, verses 35 to 41, I think it will come up on the screen as well. Let's have a read together. That day when evening came, he, that's Jesus, said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall, which is like a sudden, violent, localized storm, by the way, came up, and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern. For the non-nauticals among us, I must say, that's the back. I don't know why I didn't say that. I had to look that up. Confession. Sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet. Be still. Then the wind died down and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Okay, a few bits of background to begin with. Firstly, we've jumped forward in the series about a chapter at this point. We kind of skipped most of chapter three. In that time, there'd be more crowds gathering around Jesus. There'd be more physical healings, more oppressing spirits cast out of people. And in the first part of chapter four that we've also skipped past, another big crowd has gathered by the shore of Lake Galilee uh, to the extent that the only way Jesus can get enough distance from the crowd is by getting into a boat with his disciples in the shallows to face the shoreline and teach them. So this is what he's been doing the previous uh, day. Through the day, he's been teaching them through stories, through parables, which when we kind of read them, they're like dreamlike in quality. He's telling stories about seeds that are scattered in the ground that then grow silently in the night. And he's telling these stories to try and fuel their imagination for what this kingdom of God that he's been announcing is going to actually look like. And so this is where we pick up our passage where it starts, at the end of a long day of Jesus teaching the crowds in this boat in the shallows by the shore. And Jesus says to the disciples who are with him, right, let's take the boat now and sail across through the night to the other side of the water. Now, a bit more background for you. While this is technically a lake, it's a pretty massive one. So it's like 20 kilometers long, 13 kilometers across. I've actually stood at the point on the shoreline in Capernaum where they probably would have been in this story. And if you look out, it makes for a pretty impressive view. And because of the geography of the area, like you've got mountains right by it, there were regularly thunderstorms and gales out on the water, still are to this day. So the fact is that given that a load of the disciples are fishermen, and they are therefore experienced sailors, um, when it talks about a storm that left them fearing for their life, we can, we can guarantee it must have been a pretty extreme one. And it's safe to say it wouldn't have been a comfortable experience in a storm on one of these boats. First century Galilean fishing boats were no more than about eight meters long. Um, they look like this coming up on the screen. Um, so with a dozen or so people inside, there wouldn't have been much room to spare. The final bit of background to this story is that for first century Jews, the sea wasn't just a neutral space, but it was strongly associated in their minds with a realm of the uncontrollable, the realm of chaos and threat. And so for Mark's first readers in particular, tracking this story along in the narrative, this story would have been highly evocative to them of threads that were running through their Jewish scriptures. Uh, stories like the creation narratives of, narratives of Genesis 1 and 2, when God brings order out of chaos, 
and this good world emerges from this dark primal sea. Or the moment in the Psalms that speak of the creator God who rules the raging sea and tells its threatening waves to die down. So I say all this to say, as Mark is recounting this story, the, the sea is the sea. This is like an eyewitness story that scholars pretty sure came through Peter, but it's also more than the sea for the first readers of Mark. This is a weighted story about the power and effectiveness of Jesus in the final frontiers of our lives, the places we think of as untouchable, untouchable and governable out of reach. And so as we listen out for what this episode in the story of Jesus has to speak into our own stories, you're going to want to turn your thoughts now to those areas of your life that feel out of reach from God. What are the forces of chaos for you? What are the immovable, ungovernable realms in your life? Because this is exactly what Mark's first readers would have started to think about at this point. So Jesus instructs the disciples to set off into the night and across the sea. And then in the middle of the night, um, all hell breaks loose, doesn't it? All hell breaks loose. And the disciples think, this is actually it. This is it, the last moment of our lives, out on the water in the pitch darkness with Jesus. Take a moment just to imagine how you would feel if this was you. Terrified, obviously terrified, and that really comes through in the narrative for them, but also incensed that the one who instructed you to actually um, set sail across the water in the night is aggravatingly asleep through the whole thing. I mean, we all know people like that, don't we? But it's, and they're annoying, um, but it's pretty extreme in this scenario. So they wake Jesus up. Rabbi, don't you care if we drown? So Jesus, we're told, gets up. He rebukes the wind. He speaks to it directly as if it was a living thing. And to the waves, he says, quiet, be still. And in an instant, the wind drops to dead and the waters go glassy, you know, like to the point where you can see your reflection in it. Notice that when Jesus wakes up, he doesn't like crack his back. He doesn't sort of roll his shoulders and start rolling up his sleeves. He doesn't get his wand out like Harry Potter. He doesn't kind of come up with this great dramatic incantation, like ancient miracle legends. Someone, the protagonist would say something like, in the name of so-and-so, I command you. But Jesus doesn't do that. He just speaks an unanxious command of utter simplicity. Quiet. Be still. One commentator on this passage writes that it's like he talks to a hurricane just as he would an unruly child, and the hurricane obeys. And then Jesus turns to his disciples, and it's only a gentle rebuke. It's important we hear that. Why are you so afraid, he says. Do you still not have any faith? And the disciples in turn are terrified by this revelation of who exactly is in the boat with them. Who is this, they say, even the wind and waves obey him. So the big picture is that this is a story about a revelation of Jesus' power in our lives, right? That's clear. But I think that the second aspect is just as important. It's a story about us not getting it yet. It's a story about the disciples not getting it yet. But for Mark's first readers, for us, it's a story about how we so often don't get it yet. So that's what I want to kind of look at and turn our focus to with the rest of the time that we've got, um, to ask this question, if Jesus has power over everything in our lives, why do we so often not get it just like the disciples? 
And I've been thinking about this a lot this week. I've been kind of reflecting on my own journey in all of this. And I think there's three different things that are often at play here that cause us to act like the disciples. First thing I think is this. We attribute too much power to the wrong things. We attribute too much power to the wrong things. This is what the disciples are doing here. Because it's the sea, not just anywhere, because it's the sea, this ungovernable realm in their minds, they attribute too much power to it. And that's why despite all that they've seen Jesus do in the human world, um, casting out oppressing spirits, people physically healed, they don't yet have a mindset that he's going to do the same thing in the natural world. In other words, they've divided up their lives into two areas. One, where Jesus is an effective savior, and another realm where Jesus is neither helpful nor effective. And we do this all of the time, don't we? We do this all the time. Unlike them, we don't normally attribute this kind of ungovernable realm to the natural world. Like We're children of the scientific age, after all. The places we tend to attribute this sort of ultimate power tend to be things like complex human institutions. So if you ever applied for a job, you'll know all about this. It's a vulnerable process, isn't it? Too often we end up taking our eyes off Jesus because um, we fear that there's a sphere of power running the human resources show that Jesus is not really effective over. I've been there. It's unsettling. Finances is another big one. Trusting God with our money. How many of us come to church on a Sunday, we put our hands in the air, we worship Jesus as the Lord of all creation, and yet we find ourselves struggling to step into a fearless Christian vision of giving. It's because we find it hard to believe that Jesus' power is effective when it comes to the cold, hard data of economics. I remember the first day that I, um, I realized God was speaking to me about Kath and I uh, quitting our jobs in London and moving across the country to uh, volunteer at a vineyard church in Bath and pay our way through theology degrees in Bristol. And we've been married like no more than two weeks at this point. We were kind of in this stage. It was nearly New Year. We were trying to keep the honeymoon dream alive at that point. So we were like, you know, a little extra mini break. Um, down in the southwest. So we were on our way to this lovely hotel, and then we were going to see friends down in Bath for New Year, Bath of all places. And during the car journey, Kath just turned to me, and this was like the first meaningful conversation about our future that we'd got around to having since we got married, not before, you know, before you're thinking they've not had a proper conversation before. Um, <laughs> this is the first meaningful conversation that we'd had at that time, and Kath just out of nowhere, just threw that out as a scenario. Oh, there's this amazing theology college in Bristol. What if we were to be able to pay our way through theology there? And we know people in Bath planting a brilliant vineyard church. We could come and help them out as we go. And as she said this, it was like something just came alive in me. Something just resonated. Neither of us had talked about this before, but it was like something just clicked. We're like, this might be of God. And so it's really exciting. When we got to the hotel, it felt like it was still kind of going through my head and my heart. And I remember going to sleep that night and just um, closing my eyes in the dark on the pillow. And I started crunching the numbers in my head. I started crunching the numbers. You know, if for anyone who knows me, like the invisible spreadsheet popped up in my mind. Laughter because people know me. And I, um, um, and I just started trying to work out how much money would we be taking with us? How much would it cost um, to live for the next two years um, without fixed income? How much uh, would it cost for tuition? And how great is the divide between those two? Is there any way? And as I just started to like call up the spreadsheet in my mind, I felt God just gently reprimand me, a little rebuke, a bit like he says to the disciples 
here. Jamie, if I'm in this, is this really how you want the adventure to begin? And I can remember it still now. I think there was a bit of playfulness in um, the way I heard it from uh, God because his point was this. I was placing too much power in the wrong things. I was assuming that if God was in this thing, that it had to be that I could make the numbers fit in my head. I had to make them fit with the cold, hard data of economics. And of course, I couldn't. But I had another option. I could just stop at that point and I could say, do you know what? If God is in this amazing thing, then I can trust that God is going to make the numbers bend to his will, that he's going to provide along the way. And it was like he was giving me this other option, this slightly more exciting, faith-filled option. And confession time, because I'm a sinner, I kept crunching a few numbers in my head, I'll be really honest, for a little bit. Although it didn't go well, the chasm between the two things were just far too big. And in the end, I just thought, I'll stop thinking about it. This is not a good idea. But of course, God was in it. And of course, the numbers did bend to his will in the end. It's so much so, in fact, that we didn't just go two years in the end um, living with everything that we needed without any fixed income. We went five years like that. It was an amazing thing. And since then, I've looked back. I've tried to reverse work out the numbers, work out what was it that I didn't see at the time, what big things came together that I hadn't clocked initially that made the whole thing work. And that there were a few big things, but even now, if I get pen and paper out, I just end up just shaking my head and thinking, this was a miracle of God. Amazing thing. What are the aspects of your life that you find it hard to believe Jesus has power over? Maybe like me, it's your finances. Maybe it's your career. Um, I think Jesus is inviting many of us today to seek him for a deeper revelation of his power over these kind of realms of our life that we often write him off from. So that's number one. We attribute too much power to the wrong things. Number two is this. We think Jesus doesn't care. Uh, This is another thing that goes on for the disciples in this story. First, they become terrified. They're terrified of the sea. But then, if you notice, they get angry. They see Jesus relaxed and asleep, so they shout at him, Rabbi, don't you care if we drown? So they're not just terrified of the sea, they also mistake Jesus' actions for apathy. I think, I was sort of thinking about this in the week, I think it's significant that Jesus has been explaining to the disciples all through the previous day about the nature of the victory of the kingdom of God. It's like seeds scattered on the ground, he told them. Some grew, some didn't. But the seeds that landed in good soil set about growing quietly and visibly through the nights and through the days, all by themselves until the ground begins to bring forth a harvest. And something that started off as small as a mustard seed ends up a vast tree. And, you know, this was an uncomfortable message for the crowd to accept. It was an uncomfortable message for the disciples to accept because it just wasn't what they wanted to hear. They'd been waiting for the kingdom of God. Only they expected it and they wanted it to look radically different. They wanted it to look like a sudden show of force against their Roman occupation, to be an immediate, forceful thing, to be plain as day, not hidden, not patient, not nonviolent. And so all of this, I think, would have been playing in the disciples' minds in the night after a day of those stories. And it would have fed into their reaction to Jesus on the boat. What kind of kingdom transformation was Jesus really bringing? And how can he just lie there with his eyes closed and do nothing 
while the full forces of chaos raged around them. And I think this is why we can so easily relate to the disciples at this point. Do you not care? Like them, if we're honest, Jesus is sometimes not the God that we want. We want visibility. We want immediacy. We want force. But instead, we get Jesus on the cross, allowing his body to be broken and his breath to be taken from him. And we mistake meekness for weakness. We mistake patience for apathy. It's worth saying this was the great error of the Roman Empire, as it turned out. They mistook the nonviolence of Jesus as something that just was no threat to them whatsoever. And yet within three centuries, that seed sown in the ground would grow into a giant tree. And the Roman emperor himself became a Christian. Shortly after that, the empire would crumble, while 1,600 years later, there are two and a half billion Christians in the world. So it turned out the kingdom of God fared just fine against the power of Rome. And it's doing just fine today. It's just that we don't always see it in the moment. Like the disciples, we sometimes mistake Jesus' actions for apathy. But in this story, the reason Jesus is snoozing on a cushion at the back of the boat isn't at all because he doesn't care. It's because he's not worried. He's got them. The last thing I want to say on on this point is this. If we're going to free ourselves from this kind of fear in our lives, um, then we need to exercise from our minds this idea of a God who is unfeeling and aloof and uncaring. Do you know where the modern idea for this kind of image of God comes from? It comes from a movement called deism. Some of you might know it. It was flourished in the 18th and 19th century, uh, particularly here in the UK, and it was highly, highly influential, continues to kind of influence like background thoughts, secular thoughts about what God's like. The contention was in deism that God is like a watchmaker and the world is like a watch. And just as watches are like set in motion by watchmakers and then forever operate according to their pre-existing mechanisms. So the world is set in motion by God after which God steps back. He never intervenes. He just sits and lets the whole thing play out. And you know, there's never been a vision of God so contrary to the God of the Bible. It's a cruel heartless vision of God. It's a lie. The Bible's vision of God is of one who from the first page to the last page comes chasing after us in love. Jesus himself tells us a story to illustrate this. If we want to know what God is like, we can think of a reckless shepherd so moved with love and compassion for his sheep that he cannot accept losing even one of them, but risks his whole livelihood to go in search of them. There's a worship song we sing at the moment um, about this. The chorus goes, oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. Oh, it chases me down, fights till I'm found, leaves the 99. I couldn't earn it. I don't deserve it. Still, you give yourself away. Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. That's the true picture of what God is like in our lives. And in our passage this reality hasn't yet fully landed in the hearts of the disciples. They know Jesus is supposed to be loving. They believe it on one level. They've experienced it like to some extent, but it hasn't, for some reason or another, gone all the way down in their hearts yet. So under pressure in this moment, they still ask this question, Rabbi, don't you care? 
Here's the thing, the other side of the cross and resurrection, we never, never see the disciples ask God this question again, don't you care? By then, they have experienced the depths of God's love for them, chasing after them at the cross, and it's changed everything for them. So many of us today, we're still um, under pressure asking that question, Jesus, don't you care? And if that's you, I believe there is an invitation uh, this morning to you to a deeper encounter with God's love that would free you from this cruel vision of God as a watchmaker and lead you instead to come to know the reckless shepherd. So two things so far, we attribute too much power to the wrong things and we think Jesus doesn't care. And finally, we're coming into land with this, we trust our present circumstances uh, more than our kingdom expectation. That's the final area, I think, that informs how we don't get this. We trust our present circumstances a lot more than our kingdom expectation. So on one level, the disciples knew all this stuff about Jesus' power and his love. They'd seen it in action, and to an extent, they believed it. But in this moment, the cold, hard fact was that they were at sea in this terrifying storm, and that overrode every other consideration. But they could have reasoned differently. They could have reasoned that Jesus, who was just getting started in his ministry, wasn't about to let himself and the 12 disciples that he had just handpicked uh, go down with this boat. This is why Jesus asked them afterwards why they're so afraid and if they still had no faith. His point is, surely, surely, guys, you didn't think that would be the end. When he talks about faith here, he's not talking about like a feeling they should have had or like blind hope. He's talking about reasoned kingdom logic. If Jesus was who he said he was, the logic would go. Then the storm could rage all it liked, but it could never win. And the worst case scenario, the actual worst case scenario, was that they would get to witness a miracle. This kind of kingdom expectation is what the Apostle Paul is talking about when he instructs us to live by faith and not by sight. You know, sometimes people wrongly uh, interpret this as like the idea of us just closing our eyes, gritting our teeth, ignoring the obvious, and trying to disappear into fantasy. But Paul's asking us to do the opposite. It's a command really to think clearly in line with the kingdom narrative, to use our brains, to look beyond our present circumstances, and to pay attention. Don't get me wrong, this is sometimes complicated and mysterious and confusing, and Kat's going to actually talk about the area of unanswered prayer next week, so come back for that one. But a lot of the time it's not complicated and it's not mysterious. It just requires us to look beyond our current circumstances and apply a bit of kingdom logic. Kath won't mind me saying this, um, when we first started dating, our relationship served as a bit of a lightning rod um, for a whole load of sort of triggered fears in Kath's life that she needed healing from. Now, don't get me wrong, the relationship brought up stuff in my own life as well. It was just that it was um, a bit more painless for me to work through, whereas her stuff was more complex. It required a lot more guts, a lot more bravery to confront and experience healing in. And so as a result, there are a lot of ups and downs in our relationship early on, it's safe to say. We dated for three years off and on, and um, sometimes it would be like things between us would be like as good as they are today. The next minute, it would be the total opposite. It was a highly unsettling time. And the further along we got, of course, the more emotionally invested in the whole thing I became. 
And after a long road, like towards the end of this time, I mean, I'd been sitting on a ring at this point for three months, um, when suddenly out of nowhere, um, out for a walk in a park, the whole thing was called off again. We broke up, and this time it seemed final. And, you know, Kath was an absolute state. She drove home to her mum's in floods of tears. I went back to my house. I was just totally, totally heartbroken. And then after a pep talk from a mate of mine, sort of concluded together that I didn't really have anything else left to lose at this point. So I got in a car and drove down to try and see her at her mum's. A bit of a side subplot at this point that's not really relevant to the story, but is funny. I got stopped in the car on the way by a burly police officer on a motorbike at a traffic lights as I was feverishly texting some friends to tell them to pray. And as he got me to wind down the window, I just burst into tears on him. And this guy was not prepared for any kind of emotional response whatsoever. He thought I was really, really upset about three points. I was like, it's not you, I'm just having a really bad day. <laughs> it was so bad, in fact, that he, he went back to his motor uh, vehicle, went back to his bike. He sat on it facing in the opposite direction for five minutes. He just couldn't look at me just to give me enough space to hopefully calm down, which of course I didn't. He came back, I was still in floods of tears, so he offered to let me off just so he could go. I then refused. I was like, no, it's really not you. I'm happy to pay the fine. You were right to stop me. And we carried on. Didn't have anything to do with anything, but I wanted to tell you that. I got to Cass, and we went walking, and we talked, but nothing changed. There was no great breakthrough in that moment. So I came home that day just utterly distraught. And um, the next day, I just resolved all I could do was fast and pray uh, more seriously than I'd ever done in my life. So that's what I did. And by the end of the day, I was like uh, at home on my bedroom floor, on my stomach, praying loudly in tongues. My uh, housemates at the time were not Christians. They must have thought I'd gone mad. To be honest, I wasn't sure myself at that point. Um, and it was just a desperate situation. It was a desperate situation. Given three years of my life to this stuff, my whole heart was in it. Um, and I, I felt like, look, I can't see a way through at this point. This breakthrough that I've been praying for, this breakthrough I believe for, just wasn't coming. And um, at the same time, I realized that was a different lens that I could think about all of this in. By this point, I had seen God do miraculous things in our lives to bring us back together. I had seen, I could tell story after story of the hand of God. And I knew that the things that were obstructing the way forward weren't things that were of God. They were things based in fear and lies and wounds. And I also knew that Kath was a stone-cold, fierce woman who's got a pretty good track record of working through her stuff with God, no matter how hard it is to confront. And so suddenly, I started to think with kingdom expectation, and the moment felt different. Now, of course, I couldn't have been 100%. The, the situation was totally out of my control. But when I applied some kingdom logic, I had strong reason to believe that this wasn't going to be the end, but this was going to be um, a setup for a miracle. And in that moment, I felt God suddenly, clearly speak to me and said this, it's not going to happen today, but breakthrough's coming, and you're going to be engaged within four weeks. Now, I'll just caveat that to say, that's a pretty long and specific sentence. This sort of thing does not happen to me uh, very often at all. I can't think of another moment like it, but I guess the state I was in, God felt like I needed as much reassurance as I could get. And, of course, breakthrough did come. And this amazing, incredible, joy-filled freedom in Cass' life after all of those years came by the end of that week. And we were engaged within four weeks and planning our wedding. And the rest, as they say, is history. Come on. 
And I still tell that story with Kath's permission, I might add, because sometimes if we're going to stick at things long enough to see breakthrough, we're going to have to make decisions based not um, on uh, our circumstances that we're in by, right now, but on kingdom expectation. As a church, that's what we're called to do. You know, as recently as August, we didn't have a Sunday venue here at all. We had nothing, nada, diddly. Nothing was going on. We were six weeks out from relaunching Sunday services. We'd explored, we thought, every option in the book. And we could have panicked at that point. We could have been like, what are we going to do? We just freak out. Or we could have said, oh, maybe, maybe God just doesn't want us to meet on a Sunday anymore. Uh, but of course we didn't. We applied some kingdom logic. We looked at it through kingdom expectation. We got some of the team together and we said, look, um, we haven't got a Sunday venue at the moment, but our sense is that the timing is right for the end of September. And so it's a pretty good bet that things are going to move somewhere in the next six weeks. So all we need to do now is just pray it into being. And that's exactly what we did. And 48 hours later, with this sort of kingdom expectation in mind, Kath and I came down here again. We thought, oh, we'll try the Blackie one more time, see if they might reconsider. And out of nowhere, we had this incredible meeting with them. There was a complete kind of reversal of things. And a week later, we got an email saying, you can have it for Sunday mornings. Amazing. And so that's how we got here, but it's also how we want to continue as a church, to continually see the, object, uh, the obstacles in front of us, not as reasons to be discouraged, but as invitations to pray for a miracle. And I want to just close with this final thought. I think there's an invitation to us as a church, as individuals in the room today, to begin to let this kind of kingdom expectation alter how we see our circumstances around us. I think that's the big thing God wants to do in us at the moment, to start seeing obstacles as invitations, to realize that God never withholds things from us. He always reserves things for us. If a storm's raging around us, it's only because Jesus wants to act in the right moment. He's our friend he has power over everything in our lives. He's good. He loves us all the way down. And he's inviting us this morning to let go of fear and grow in kingdom expectation.